Welcome to the Jesus Church Podcast. We're a family seeking to become like Jesus, empowered by His presence, to partner in God's creative work of restoring the world. We pray this episode encourages and equips you along the journey. If we haven't met yet, my name is Shelby. I'm one of the pastors on staff. And I'm so glad you're here. We have a lot of ground that we're covering today, so I hope that you came caffeinated and ready to rock. I'm excited to dig in. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Exodus chapter six. And if you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. We have some lovely volunteers that will bring you a Bible so that you can use it today. And that's yours to take home if you don't have one waiting for you at home. So Exodus chapter six. We're gonna get there eventually, so maybe just like put your finger there. Um, But why don't we pray to prepare our hearts uh, for what the Spirit is gonna reveal. He's the revealer of truth and we need him to move. So let's just, yeah, prepare our hearts for what he wants to do in this place. God, thank you that you are here with us. Thank you that you make yourself known to us. God, I pray that as we open up the scriptures, as we dig into your story, the parts of our own stories, God, that are out of alignment would be brought into alignment. Holy Spirit, would you do that this morning? We wanna meet with you. We love you, Jesus, and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Well, like Tim said, in just two short weeks, followers of Jesus all over the world will be gathering together in their local communities to remember and to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. The moment in history that changed everything, the moment that broke the power of sin and death and shame, the moment that makes redemption and restoration possible for people everywhere. The resurrection of Jesus is a really big deal. It's the climax, the centerpiece of God's story that has the potential to transform the way that we see, understand, and live into our own stories. And so as a church, we have set out to intentionally prepare our hearts and our minds for the celebration of Resurrection Sunday by exploring the meta story of scripture that gives Easter its richness. You know, there's something in all of us to one degree or another that loves a good story. I've got three nieces and they refuse to fall asleep at night without someone reading them at least one. Most nights it's like seven bedtime stories. From a young age, there's this thing in us that craves a good story. And I think that, that there's something about that that's more than just some biological craving that we have for entertainment or amusement. In fact, research tells us that our brains are hardwired for narrative, that we literally can't function without a story to live by. Check this out, neurobiologist Mark Turner, he writes this, story is the basic principle of how the human mind works. Most of our experience, our knowledge, and our thinking is organized as a set of stories. Narrative structure is essential not only for effective communication, but for thinking itself. Our wiring, it points to this fundamental reality that all humans live by a story. A narrative by which we make sense of the big questions of life, questions like, who am I? 
Why am I here? What's the meaning and the purpose of life? What went wrong and how do we fix it? In other words, you and I are meaning-making creatures and God has made us to make sense of the world around us through narrative. And so, it's really important, don't miss this, because of that, it is really important for us to recognize and to remain aware of which story it is that we are living by. Because as Pete Hughes says, and you've heard this a couple of times, we're gonna keep saying it. As Pete Hughes says, the story you live in is the story you live out. What does that mean? One quick example. If if the story that you're living by is built on the foundation of this belief of survival of the fittest, then when someone is a threat to you, the way that the story we're living by says to respond is to see that person in a particular way, namely to see that person as a threat, competition that we need to beat out, that we need to take out in order to protect and to provide for our own. Do you see the story that we live by? The story that we live in is the story that we live out. And knowing this, Knowing that story shapes the way that you and I live out our everyday lives, it makes a lot of sense that our creator has chosen to reveal himself to us through a story. The Bible, which is a library of 66 books, it tells a unified story that leads to Jesus. And so as you and I have to navigate our way, have to sift through all of the narratives that society and culture tells us about what matters most and how things ought to be, scripture functions as an alternative story, a counter narrative that calls us to live in alignment with the real true story of God and the reality of Jesus himself. Now, side note, I think it's helpful for us to acknowledge that reading the Bible is hard. If you've tried reading it, you know this to be true. Can I get an amen? Like, sometimes I'm reading certain parts of the scriptures and I'm like, what is happening? Is this even allowed to be in here? Like, what is going on? It can be hard. And I don't think that we give ourselves permission to acknowledge that often enough. And so I just wanna encourage you as a side note to check out the Bible Project. They are just this incredible wealth of like tools and insight to help equip us on the journey of reading the scriptures. And they have a whole series called How to Read the Bible. Again, it's just this toolbox that we can draw from to help us as we navigate our way through this story that is beautiful, that is compelling, and that we need so deeply. So check that out, okay? Side note over. So as we continue in this series that we're in called The Story, it can be helpful to visualize the biblical story as a line that you can plot four key movements on. So for all my visual learners in the room, I've got a picture uh, for us to check out. Think of the biblical story like a line that we can plot these four key movements on. Movement one, creation. Movement two, fall. Movement three, redemption. And movement four, new creation. Now. Today, we're gonna look at act three of the story, which as you can see, is the largest act by like a lot. Redemption history spans 39 books of the Bible, which is about 926 chapters. So I hope that you're ready to stay the night because we have like a lot of ground to cover. 
Just kidding. Uh, with our time together, we, we're gonna look at one of the main stories in the Old Testament that the New Testament writers use as a key to interpret what Jesus accomplished on the cross. But in case you missed the first couple of weeks in this series, I highly encourage you to check them out. But a quick recap for those who missed it to catch us up to Act 3. Act 1 is creation. The story starts with God hovering over the dark and disordered chaos of the world and out of which he brings beauty, he brings order. God here is establishing himself as the source and the sustainer of all of life who is good and who does good things. The pinnacle of his creative work in creation is you and I, humans who are made in his image and likeness, which means that we're created with intrinsic value and we're made to connect with God. The creation story tells us that we were made on purpose for a purpose and that purpose is to partner with God in ruling the world and we do that by harnessing all its potential and creating even more beauty and goodness and order in the world, but then the story takes a tragic turn, which takes us to act two, the fall. In the garden, humanity is faced with a choice, a choice that's represented by a fruit tree. And the choice is this, continue living out your purpose by partnering with God and find freedom by trusting in his knowledge of good and evil, or humanity could seize power and define good and evil on their own terms, which God warns would kill them. Here we're introduced to the serpent and the serpent calls God's goodness into question and deceives humanity into thinking that eating the fruit that God told them not to eat will actually be the way that they get the freedom and the power that they really want and need in order to rule the world. And humanity buys the lie. They eat the fruit, the fallout of which is devastating. That devastation reaches into all of our relationships. It fractures our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, our relationship to the earth and our relationship to our purpose. Now don't don't miss this, that the effect of the fall, it doesn't mean that we stop being human. We remain in the image of God. We don't stop being human, but the fall has deeply impacted how we are human. Evil and sin weave their way into every aspect of God's creation and every dimension of what it means for us to be human. And that relational brokenness results in a whole civilization that has redefined evil as good. As you can imagine, jealousy, self-protection, rage, shame, and violent power grabs ultimately unravel the fabric of humanity, leaving God's people desperate for repair. And as the gates of Eden close on Adam and Eve, we're left with some really big questions. Questions like, how do I become free from this relational brokenness? And who will rescue me? How do I become free and who will rescue me? And this brings us to act three in the story, God's plan for redemption. As God moves his story forward, you can't even get past Genesis three without seeing evidence of God's plan for redemption. By Genesis 12, we start to see just how that plan of redemption is gonna unfold. 
In Genesis 12, the story zooms in on one family, the family of Abraham and Sarah. And to this family, God makes a covenant. Covenants are the key to God's redemptive plan to restore humanity to its divine purpose. But we don't use this word covenant a lot in our day. So it's important for us to pause really quick and get some understanding about what a covenant is, what it means. Theologian Whitney Wooler helps us understand that a covenant is a relationship between two partners who make binding promises to each other and work together to reach a common goal. Starting in Genesis, God enters into one formal partnership, i.e. a covenant, after another with various humans in order to rescue his world. These divine human partnerships drive the narrative forward until it reaches its climax in Jesus. And so in God's covenant with Abraham's family, he makes three main promises. Promise number one, he promises a personal relationship with God. He promises Abraham the growth of his family into a nation, a nation that will be blessed to be a blessing to all of the other nations. And then lastly, God promises Abraham's family land. And it's through the blessing of this one family, it's through this covenant relationship that he enters into with Abraham that promises blessing that God sets out to redeem and bring blessing to all families. Like I mentioned earlier, since we don't have time today to cover every single covenant that God makes with people to move his plan of redemption forward, uh, we're gonna look at just one main story, a key story that illuminates God's heart for redemption and that brings texture and richness to the redemption that Jesus makes available to all of us through what he accomplished on the cross. You ready? Did I lose you just now? Like, let's like lean in, take a deep breath. We're gonna dig in and then we'll come up for air at some point, but it'll be good. (laughs) The story starts in Exodus chapter one. Just like God promised, Abraham's descendants have multiplied greatly and some 400 years later, they now find themselves in Egypt. God's people had originally arrived in Egypt as famine refugees. And through God's providence and his good provision for his people, they found favor in the eyes of the reigning Pharaoh. So things were pretty good for a while. But then Exodus 1.8 tells us that there was a change in leadership and the new Pharaoh did not extend the same favor. What was once a place of economic asylum was now a prison house, a prison house of economical, social, spiritual and political oppression and exploitation. Hear the, hear the cries of God's people as they live as slaves in this prison house. Exodus 2, 23, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God's people are living as slaves and in their desperation, they cry out for a redeemer to come and set them free and look at how God responds. I just sense that some of you are coming in here today and there are things that you are walking with, things that you have come up against in this past week, this past month, maybe over the past couple of years that have you in a place, a position of desperation where you find yourself crying out to God. I want 
you to hear this next part because it is a window into the character of a God who loves and sees his people and refuses to give up on them. God says this, God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So what does he do? God looked on the Israelites and he was concerned about them. You have a God that sees you in whatever pain you're processing and he is concerned for you. But he wasn't just concerned for them. He, he doesn't just hear their cry, he responds to it. And he responds to it by calling out to Moses. And this is what he says to Moses. He says, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you. Now redeem is one of those words again that we don't use a ton in our day and age. Uh, typically, if we do use it, it's usually when maybe we've had a bad day or something bad has happened and we look to a person and we're like, we need to redeem the day. And maybe that looks like, I don't know, hypothetically speaking, like rummaging through your pantry at 10 o'clock at night searching for something sweet to just make the bad feelings of the bad day go away for a moment. That didn't happen to me this week. Maybe it did. The chocolate chip cookies at Trader Joe's right now, if you're gluten-free, they've got some new gluten-free cookies that Molly told me about, they're good. <laughs> Should check those out. Anyway, this word redeem uh, doesn't mean much in our day and age. We water it down to just be a word that is about making us feel better, to get away from the bad experience that we're navigating. But the word redeem in the lives of God's people had deep cultural meaning. Redemption is the Hebrew verb ga'al. Say ga'al if you're awake. Beautiful. It's the Hebrew verb ga'al and the noun for the person who performs that action is go'el. Can you say go'el? I love the energy over here. So ga'al is redemption and the one who does the redemption is go'el. In Israel, Somebody acted as a goel, a redeemer, whenever they took it upon themselves to act in defense of another member of their own family who had been wronged or who was facing some kind of danger or threat. In this day, redemption was a cultural practice that a family member would act out uh, when any of one or all three of these situations were taking place. Situation one, a redeemer was needed when another family member was murdered and the guilty person needed to be brought to justice. Situation number two, a redeemer was needed when a family member was stuck in debt or slavery and needed to be set free. And then finally, a redeemer was needed when the family name was under threat and needed to be kept alive. So what is God saying to Moses when he says, I will redeem your people? Christopher Wright helps us understand. He says, so when God promised he would go all his people and when Moses celebrates that he had done so, it speaks powerfully of Yahweh's adopting a significant role in relation to Israel. It means God is as committed to his people as any family member to another. 
He accepts a kinship relationship with all of its obligations. God is prepared to do whatever it takes, to pay whatever it costs in order to protect, defend, and liberate his people. God promises to redeem his people and his work of redemption is what frees them from every facet of their bondage. He frees them from the political enslavement, the economic exploitation, the social discrimination, and the spiritual oppression that they were experiencing as slaves in Egypt. But here's the thing, and don't miss this, God's act of redemption, it wasn't just about freeing them from something. It wasn't just about delivering them from all of these different dimensions of their slavery. It wasn't just about freeing his people from something. It was about freeing them for something. It was about freeing them for something. But before we can unpack what this means, we first need to understand how our culture's definition of freedom has completely warped the way that we interpret and respond to God's work of redemption. The dominant view of freedom in the West is perhaps most clearly depicted in the following excerpt from the great 21st century philosopher and poet, Princess Elsa from Frozen. Elsa says this, she sings this, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I am free. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. Like Elsa, whose postmodern worldview believes that there are no moral absolutes, so many of us have come to understand freedom as being able to do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whoever we want, so long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. To define what is good for ourselves and, and, and therefore freedom becomes about removing any and all constraints on our choices. But friends, we need to hear this. This is not the way that Jesus or the writers of the New Testament understood freedom. They understood freedom as not just the ability or the power to choose, but the ability to choose what is good. Culture's definition of being able to do and say whatever it is that we desire puts us in the position of defining good for ourselves, which is exactly where the serpent led Adam and Eve in the garden, remember? Where does defining good for ourselves lead us? It leads us to the same place, the same choice where the serpent led Adam and Eve. They were faced with the choice to find freedom by trusting and obeying in God's knowledge of good and evil, or they could seize power and define good and evil on their own terms. In the end, the serpent sold them a view of freedom that only led them into slavery. John Mark Comer sums this up by calling it the slavery of our freedom. This way of viewing freedom only leads us into slavery. 
And so when God redeems his people by leading them out of Egypt, he doesn't just free them from something, he frees them for something. Christopher Wright helps us understand the significance of this point way better than I could. So I'm gonna let him do the heavy lifting, but this is a long quote, but don't lose track. This is good. He says this, when God redeemed Israel at the Exodus, it was not just out of the several dimensions of their bondage, but also into a covenant relationship with God himself. It was not the case that Israel was just physically enslaved and needed to be freed, in which case God could have led them out and then waved farewell as they made off to whatever destiny they might choose in their freedom. The problem was not just that the Hebrews were slaves, but that they were slaves to the wrong master and needed to be transferred into the service of the living God. The exodus was not a movement from slavery to freedom, but from slavery to covenant. Redemption was for relationship with the redeemer to serve his interests and his purposes in the world. God frees his people from political enslavement, social discrimination, spiritual oppression, and economic slavery. But he does that in order to free them to the ability to live in relationship with God by serving and worshiping him. And check out what this freedom does to Moses. Exodus thirty-three fifteen. Moses says, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. God's work of redemption frees Moses to follow God and live in relational partnership with him. When Moses cries out, don't send me without your presence, it's because Moses has come into the freedom that was not just about delivering him from bondage, but that set him on the path to walk in his destiny. And that destiny for all of us is to live in right relationship with the living God, out of which all other parts of our destinies can come alive. Freedom does not just deliver us from what we're in bondage to, it leads us into our destiny of living in partnership with God. And out of that partnership, we are able, empowered to bring about beauty and order and goodness in the world. And how do we walk in that destiny? We trust and obey Him Again, God is giving his people a fresh opportunity to choose a different way, to make the choice that Adam and Eve didn't make, and ultimately to trust in God's definition and his understanding of what is good and what is evil. But over and over again, this is why this section, this is why Act 3 is so long, over and over again, humanity falls into the same trap of defining evil as good and letting their freedom enslave them. But get this, God doesn't just tell us what he wants for us. He equips us with what we need to do it. 
In the very next part of the story, God lays out his heart for his people. He, he does this by giving them the 10 commandments. Friends, the 10 commandments were not just a list of rules for God's people to follow so that God would save them. God had already saved them. God had already delivered them. God's gift of the 10 commandments was so that they could remain in right relationship with him so that they could partner with him and therefore walk the path that God was illuminating for them to live into their God-given destiny, receiving blessing to be a blessing. But God sees, he sees us, he knows us. He knows how prone we are to wonder, to disobey because of our heart's disordered desires. And the more that our desires continue to be disordered, the harder our heart becomes, hardening to a point where we're not even able to love God or walk in his ways. And so what does God do? He doesn't just tell us his heart for us. He doesn't just tell us what he wants for us or what he thinks is best for us. He equips us to do it. This leads us to the new covenant. God gives us a new heart. Look at what he says to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. Put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you. I will redeem you from all your uncleanness. In the midst of humanity's rebellion, God moves his plan of redemption forward by promising a day, a day when he would fulfill all of his promises, a day when God's work of redemption would extend to all people. And it's the anticipation of this new covenant where God would pour out his spirit on all people, replacing our hearts of stone with a heart of flesh, giving us a heart transplant, a new heart that moves us forward into the New Testament where we're introduced to Jesus. And in the surrender and the sacrifice of his own life, Jesus brings about redemption on our behalf. He is our redeemer. He is the one who was willing to do whatever it took. The one who was willing to pay whatever it cost. The cost that was required to be paid in order for us to walk in the restoration of his redemptive work. Jesus frees us from our slavery to sin and all of the effects of evil. And he brings about a second exodus, delivering us out of the darkness of captivity and into the light of God that illuminates our path so that we can walk in our destiny of living in partnership with Jesus to bring about beauty, goodness, and order in the world. To all of you here today, myself included, who are weighed down by worry, weighed down by the weight 
of your sin, burdened maybe by the brokenness of relationships in your life. I feel like some of you sitting here today, you're like, maybe this is for some people, but you don't understand how broken and messed up the relationships in my life are. If that is you, this is the invitation that Jesus holds out to each and every one of us. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Catch it. He doesn't say, let me just take that yoke off of you. He takes off the yoke that was too heavy for us to carry, but he gives us a a new yoke to walk in. And then he describes that yoke. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He doesn't just free you and I from the yoke of slavery that our sin leads us into. He gives us a new yoke to walk in, one that is easy and light. And how do we walk in it? We walk in it by trusting and obeying what he has said is good. Brothers and sisters, as we prepare to celebrate Jesus's victory, over sin in just a couple weeks. The Exodus story invites us to respond right now, to respond right now by crying out to the only one who is able to redeem us, the only one who is able to see us in all of the ways that we are walking around stuck in weights, in sin, in brokenness that we are unable in and of ourselves to walk out of and to call out, to cry out as those who were in Egypt cried out to God and trust in his heart for us, his character for us that he will hear the cries of his people and he will respond. Friends, we can trust that he is able to deliver and dismantle every dimension of our bondage and brokenness, that he is able to free us so that we can choose again what is good, what he has said is good. This is the gift that we have in Jesus, our redeemer. And so this is why every single week we create space at the end of our teaching to respond, to respond. We, we don't believe that this time of gathering is just so that we can learn new things about Jesus or talk about Jesus. It's so that we can meet with Jesus. And some of us, and I'll include myself in this, are in a season where we feel stuck. We feel weighed down. We feel burdened by the brokenness that we are trying to navigate our way through. And the good news today is that Jesus and his kindness has made a way to meet with you. And so we're gonna create that space now to respond. Molly's gonna lead us through this time. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to partner with us through giving, visit us at jesuschurch.org.